Hello and welcome to Inequality Talks, a podcast from the volunteers of the Economic Inequality Group at Melamfogli Sandviga Aarhus. I am Adam uh, and today I have with me Amanda, Elise and Sebastian. Each episode we discuss a different topic or idea related to questions of economic inequality and equality, learning and sharing knowledge about what it is and how best to fight it. Today we are going to be talking about collective ownership, a term we often hear used in discussions about politics and economics, but less often hear explained. So what is collective ownership? On the most basic level, it just means many people owning something together, rather than an individual owning something entirely by themselves. That sounds simple enough, but collective ownership can mean very different things depending on what it means to own something and what it means to do so together. Neither of these things actually have a single, simple, unchanging definition, as much as sometimes we might like to talk about it like they do. Discussions around property and ownership are often presented as a choice between two opposite options, between private property of the individual and authoritarian state ownership. This is a false dichotomy. Today, we hope to add some nuance to those discussions and show some real alternatives by discussing those questions of what it means to own, what it means to do something collectively, where our ideas of ownership come from, what different kinds of collective ownership already exist or that might be possible, and why all this might be helpful in the context of the struggle against economic inequality. So first, let's introduce ourselves and say just very briefly a couple of sentences about where our interest in this topic comes from and how we approach it. Would you like to start, Amanda? Thank you. What I've been thinking about is a fundamental problem with economic inequality is that a few people own a lot and a lot of people own nothing. And if you already own something, you can loan money and you can own more. And if you don't own anything, you can't loan money and you can't own anything. So like, it's a self-reproducing mechanism. Thank you. And Elise? Hello. My interest in this topic is uh, mostly revolving around workers' cooperatives and critiquing the way we structure work in general. And that is primarily based on personal struggles with work. I've never really been satisfied with my position in paid work. Yeah, and also this imbalance of power and of wealth, like you talk about, Amanda, that's also something that really doesn't sit well with me. So, yeah, and uh, I'm Sebastian, and um, I really agree with what you're saying, Elise. And uh, yeah, I would totally agree with that. Whenever I had work experiences, when I say work, I mean uh, jobs, I always felt that for me, like I could never really own it in the way I would like. It was always someone telling me to do something or some structures that I could. I, I was just selling my time in order to get money, but it was not my own project. And I always felt it was so unfair that if I wanted to have my own project or develop it with others, then I would have to sell myself to the bank by making a huge loan to start something that is of course very risky and that's okay or i would have needed to be super rich in order to be able to start that so it's really related to how can we actually realize ourselves in a way that is fair and and also i mean all these things that are, i would call that are very much like injustice like paying rent i could never understand what i would like give hundreds or thousands of euros to someone that is doing nothing for it, just because they have a piece of paper saying they own my house when I'm the one living in it. I mean, I could understand paying rent if it was to um, a community that would use the money to make more community services, but just someone that is living off my work, that felt so unfair. <laughs> so that's why I want to talk about some of these things. Thank you, Sebastian. Uh, and, and for me, I come from a bit of a, a history of an ideas angle originally, philosophically, and I looked at economic ideology and theory, so slightly less personal, although there's an unfairness, like there's a fundamental unfairness. Broader perspective is that it's very clear to me, historically, that the concentration of power in the hands of very few people is very damaging, and it's a source of, of a great deal of evil, and that applies just as much with super rich people as with kings, because fundamentally, money and property bestows a lot of power. And so I think that's the fundamental problem, and I think collective ownership would distribute that power and help negate some of those dangers, as well as having all those nice personal things and giving people a, a sense of ownership 
What's the opposite of alienation? That. I think you bring up a good point. Another way of looking at collective ownership is a kind of decentralization of wealth, ownership, or power. And that's the other side of my approach that I think there's a moral argument for it in terms of we talk about a democracy, we think democracy is good, we think it's good that people have a say in their lives, and collective ownership is just an extension of that principle. So when we discuss collective ownership, it's very important that we all agree on what definitions we're using in our discussion. And especially we have to talk about what is ownership. Collective ownership, yes, but what does ownership even mean? And what does property even mean? Firstly, I would want to say that ownership is a social construct. No one owns anything inherently. And (laughs) you can think about it in legal terms where individuals are distinguished from other individuals with regard to a certain right, legal right, over some kind of socially valued good, which can also be intangible, like intellectual property. So yeah, you can look at it through legal lens and it seems kind of more real, but it still is a social construct. I mean, yeah, you're right there. It's an, it's an idea, right? It's an idea that you have a collection, a bundle of rights and responsibilities that are attached to a thing and that is enforced at the most fundamental level through power. And that's why ideas of a stateless capitalist society don't really work. You need someone enforcing ideas of, of rights and responsibilities. And in our current framework, and this was the philosophical framework that it developed from, it was literally a sacred right. So it was based off a religious idea. There were some philosophical bases for this of how it developed. There's some ideas that it originally developed from labor. If you use the land, you have a claim to that land. That came from Locke, but that got distanced later. But it also can be limited. It often is limited. And it's not a given that the rights and responsibilities that we associate with property now are the ones that need to be there, like that you have a right to exploit it as much as possible or to make a profit of it, or that you don't have a responsibility to maintain it for future generations. So those things can change, um, but we have a very specific framework now that that is generally focused towards profit and, and ownership in those terms. Yeah, and for me, it's also very, very important to remember where it comes from. And I'm more familiar with uh, French and Belgian history because that's my own background. And I'm not a historian, but I've read quite a lot. You say that... Um, Property is a sacred right, and it was actually stated that way after the French Revolution in the first constitution that was drafted. But who were the people drafting that? It was um, capitalist owners, business owners. That were the people that were making this revolution. It's like we have decided that the French Revolution was a popular revolution. Of course, the people was an actor of it, but the people who gained power were um, business owners. And if you look historically to the development, we came from a system in which people had certain type of rights because of their birth. So if you were a noble, you you had a certain kind of rights. If you were a peasant, you had other type of rights or less rights. And you can see the evolution from that to the system in which we live now when you study, for instance, court processes in which you see that someone was in a court case because they had trespassed the forest and they were not allowed there because they were peasants and they had nothing to do there because it was the king's forest, to later in time that they were not allowed there because it was someone's property. So you can see this evolution in time until the French Revolution when actually a certain type of people seized power and decided that they were going to organized societies themselves around this kind of rules. The first article of the first Declaration of Human Rights is the right to property and the fact that it is sacred. So we need to remember that, as you say, property is a social construct. It's not natural. It comes from an historical process. And it has changed. And it can still change. Because if you look at after the Second World War, when we start to have uh, social security systems, then some part of the property becomes everyone's somehow. Because some part of the wealth that is created goes to benefit the public, the general public, through schools, hospitals, uh, free healthcare, and all the rest of it. You could say that it's a distribution, but you could also maybe say 
that it's uh, organizing property differently. Instead of all the wealth being extracted and given to the owners, some part of it is uh, socialized, becomes collective. The way things have been socialized before was often through nationalization. And that was the post-World War II thing especially, was nationalization. And then you have a democratic control over the government, which is in control of the national stuff. That has also been associated problematically with authoritarianism, which is why I think we get that often, that division between it's either private ownership or authoritarianism. But that is not a necessary uh, division. I'd also like to point out that property can have a broader meaning or ownership can have a broader meaning. And I think a lot of the the origins of it as rights is a way of sort of philosophizing and legalizing mm -hmm. ideas that were more vague and in their more vague forms had had broader things. So predating private property and individual property, you did have a lot of collective ownership. They probably wouldn't have theorized it in those terms, but you have common ownership. And we still do. We still say that the air is for everyone, effectively. There's problematic areas where people try to privatize things, but there are certain things that we say are collective. And originally, historically, hunter-gatherer societies, even peasant societies, in a lot of uh, still existing indigenous societies, that it, it still functions in this way, that land is owned collectively, it's used collectively. And these exist. And the step towards private property was a way of, of, of formalizing these things, but it formalized it in a specific way um, that isn't, isn't necessarily the only way to do it and and it doesn't necessarily represent how things originally were where collective ownership and collective control through social norms through traditions were, was much more prevalent and as a result it was seen as part of a historical continuity and there was a lot more preservation now we've like sort of discussed what ownership is and what property means when we're discussing it but can we maybe define more clearly how it relates to economic inequality what is the purpose of like discussing collective ownership and how could it maybe challenge economic inequality in the society we have today? I mean, look at the world today. Uh, you see, if you look at the Oxfam report, you see that a tiny fraction, uh, not even the one person, but like the 0.1 yeah. person, <laughs> they own so much compared to the 50 percent, the poorest in, in the world. So, I mean, it doesn't take much to look at that and say there is something wrong. Like the way that society is organized today doesn't benefit the majority. It benefits a very, very small minority. And also on a global scale, you can look at the inequalities between the so-called developed world and the developing world. And all you have to do is look 100 years back, 200 years back, and look at colonialism and how this concept of ownership actualized and see what colonialism has done to these so-called developing countries, or you could think of them in, in these kind of world systems theory terms. World systems theory is, is basically saying that we have created a system of dependence where these periphery countries are so reliant on the economies of the industrialized countries in Western Europe and the US and so on. And that stems from this extension of ownership into land through exploration, in quotes, still is present in post-colonial, uh, in the post-colonial world. No, but I think that's, that's an important point. The ownership is, is, is tied currently now, as I said, to power. I heard the statistic the other day. I think it's 71 out of the 100 biggest economies in the world are actually companies. There is no democratic oversight over those companies. I mean, theoretically, they elect board members. But it's about who owns, owns that wealth. There's a huge amount of power there. That also denies the people who don't have that wealth, which is incredibly concentrated, a lot of possibilities. And this has always been a historic thing. Since those first revolutions, there's always been that contradiction between the rights of property ownership and equality and access to all of these things. Slavery was a fundamental element of it. Uh, exploitation and colonialism was a fundamental element of it. And it is now used to continue global imbalances. We say that colonialism is over, but America can intervene wherever he wants. And you have the, the World Bank, the IMF, that can go into countries and decide on their economies because of ownership, money, and who controls them. 
And do you have maybe some specific examples to illustrate what you are uh, explaining about colonialism today? Just think about where we get our clothes from. We have societies in India and Bangladesh, basically local economies that are entirely dependent on our consumerism in the industrialized rich countries. So it's creating a system of dependence in order to secure um, jobs um, and livelihood. They need to rely on these big companies coming in and setting up factories. But then you also have the destruction of land, like look in Brazil and the destruction of the rainforest to make soy. So it's not just livelihoods, but it's also environmental degradation that we're seeing as a consequence of this system of um, ownership oppression. And, and that's, that's a historical process, right? At the start of, of the introduction of capitalism, one of the ways it was done not necessarily always consciously, it was a longer historical process, the dispossession of the peasants from collective land and from small holdings, so they would have to go work in the cities, effectively, and make up the proletariat, because otherwise they couldn't eat. And that continues today. Mm -hmm. And I think this shows also the injustice of our current system. We talk about sacred rights, but with indigenous tribes, historically and currently, these people have been living on this land for years and years and years, by any real definition, they, that was their land. They relied on it for food. They lived there for generations. They had a relationship to it. Often they did things that maintained that land. They made fire breaks so wildfires wouldn't go, all kinds of stuff like that. And then people come along and go, well, you don't have a deed to this, so I can take this land. And often it's been strip, stripped and exploited for, for profit by a, a very small minority who get all the benefits and those local people get nothing. And that's where also like the definition of a common becomes so important. Uh, when you look at a common being a resource that is managed by a community through democratically organized rules and negotiation for managing this resource, and that it, it cannot be sold or given away. And this is where I get into another pet peeve of mine, which is that in economic theory, mm -hmm. the tragedy of the commons is this idea that in commons they won't be maintained. The issue is that people have a perverse incentive to overexploit I think the, the traditional example, I can't remember who did it, but he said, you know, different people, they own their cattle and they come to this common area and they'll overgraze. There's an incentive to do it. Historically and realistically, that's the opposite of what has happened. Commons have been much better, as you say, at, as managing land, also because it seems part of historical continuity. There's social incentives, social forms. That's just a pet mm. It's Garrett Harding, by the way. Yeah, it should be called strategy of the, <laughs> like the companies because yeah. they overexploit heavily, so... One of the main critiques, or one of the highlighted critiques of that tragedy of the commons, is he assumes that the cattle is private. And when you th think about that and you look at it from a European perspective, that's when you realize how alienated we are, because we cannot even imagine what it would be for us to live in a, this kind of relationship with our environment. And now we, we came to the point in which our, our politicians are begging for creating jobs that are pure exploitation. For the last 30 years, we've been like begging for creating more jobs so that people make a living. And when you look at the history of the workers' movement before that, it was actually about at least owning together the, like, the means of making a living. Yeah, and I think also in relation to the global injustice with, like, for example, clothing industry in India, it will be a future dependency as well because we are destroying a lot of lands destroying a lot of earth and a lot of environment and a lot of even health for the people who are doing the work so it will have consequences far out in the future even if we stop doing it now all right could you expand on the term of the means of production that you just talked about our society is based very much around what we produce and that could that can also be intangible goods like social security all that kind of stuff and what we're talking about here is that who gets to decide what we make decides what our society is like. So like you're saying, these people could collectively decide what was important to make and so they could make a contribution to how society was structured. Whereas when you have all the power to create, all of the money and all of the tools, when you have control over that, it is the, the super wealthy, if money is concentrated in small hands, who decide the kind of society we live in because they decide what is made, what is prioritized, how things are structured. The history of the workers' movement. Yes. Actually, like one part of it was reducing the working time, and the other part of it was owning collectively the means of production. Yes. And um, as Adam said earlier, one way to do that was through nationalization. 
But actually, we tend to forget that this was not the only way. Um, if you look at France in 46, a few um, communists went into the government and they had like very little ministry at the time. Like it was like work, energy, and I don't remember what was the third one. But they managed to pull off stuff like the social security, which was not government managed, but what actually managed by the workers themselves. And it was the equivalent of the budget of the state every year that was managed by the worker. And it was only one fund. It was not divided in uh, pension and unemployment. It was one fund to protect uh, everyone from all the risks of life. And they also managed to not really like nationalizing the energy system, but also making it in a way that it was managed partly by the worker. This just lasted a few years. After that, the government fell and it was very quickly attacked. But they managed in a few years to show that it was possible to take some very crucial areas of the economy and give them to the people who were using them and managing them. Yeah, and one problem is who owns the means of production. They can decide what to do and what to create. But also someone owns it and a lot of people work for them, but all the profit goes to the owner. And that makes a lot of inequality mm-hmm. because you have maybe hundreds and thousands of people working their asses off right. to work for a business, but they sell themselves to like an hourly price. And if they do more productive stuff than that, then all that profit goes to the owner and the owner is doing everything to make workers actually be more productive than what they're paid. Mm-hmm. And that's why it would be... A, great solution to actually make it a collective ownership so everyone works and everyone benefits from the profit that they're making and not just one or two persons and the structure is the rights of the individual are to make a profit whereas when you when you have it collectively owned they could decide to do something else rather than just accumulate that profit yeah well in a workers co-op all of the profit goes into the reserves so there isn't actually like you said amanda this concentrated wealth So it still could fall into the trap of being profit-oriented because there is still a profit motive. The more that's in the reserves, well, the more you can do with the company, but also the more protected your shares are. So you have seen this with some workers' cooperatives like this Mondragon. I'm not Mm. sure if I'm saying it right. But it's this, I think it's the biggest workers' cooperative. It's basically like... one from Spain? Yeah. Yeah. It's basically like a town, which is just one big workers' cooperative, as I understand it. And um, they kind of fell into this trap because they were so big. It's still private ownership in the sense that there is still ownership, um, private ownership of the means of production. But... The cooperative is still one unit. It's more decentralized in the way that it's structured. But it's important to recognize that there can still be problems with workers' cooperatives. There's still a profit motive. But there is at least more democracy in the management. And for example, if, if I'm working in a workers' cooperative and my boyfriend has uh, just been diagnosed with cancer and we can't afford medical treatment. Maybe we all meet in a democratic meeting and address those needs. Maybe I can work more hours and make more, or maybe I can work less so I can be home with my boyfriend and make sure he's taken care of. There's still profit motive, but at least the needs of the people are the priority. Yeah, and also I think, of course, there will still be profit motive, but the profit will be distributed between more people than just like one person exploiting. My my understanding of Mondragon was that it started as a sort of a federation of smaller co-ops. Yes. And each each supports, you know, when one is suffering more, they can channel money into supporting that. Anyone can leave at any time. I think there have been some problems with some co-ops being too profitable and then leaving. And perhaps because of the broader structure in which it exists, outside of Spain, Mondragon has started to operate more like a normal corporation where they don't let people become part of the, exactly. the co-ops, which is a problematic thing. But that is an argument for expanding cooperative ownership and having maybe on a monthly level. So you have it on the on the worker-owned co-op level and then you have a broader thing. So within those worker-owned co- co-ops, it operates. And then on the la- larger level, some of that cooperation is shared between everyone. 
it's more difficult to set up. That, that's where tax are still important yes. because that's where you see that if a lot of wealth is produced, still need to be able to say that some part of it should go to the general public in both cases. That's also like collective ownership, like the taxes. Like as I don't understand how it works in Denmark about tax system, but in France and Belgium, they have what they call uh, cotisation sociale, which, which are social contributions. And that means that you get your salary that is paid by the employer. In that salary, there's a part that you get in your pocket and there's a part that you give to the tax system. But on top of that, for the fact of employing you and using your time, you employers also need to pay a social contribution to the state. Which means that the wealth that you create is not only your salary, but also include that part that is every time socialized. So that's kind of saying that when wealth is created through the work of someone, it needs also to be recognized that um, that person benefited from school, that person benefited from a, a, a whole lot of social services. So this wealth that is produced, a part of it from the work of this person, need to go back to society. In Denmark, we don't have a specific tax to repay. That I think mm. it's just um, it's presumed that when you get a lot of social benefit, then you'll in a life long circle you'll repay it through just working that is so incredibly danish yes that is very danish norms. yes um, <laughs> the point of how it works in denmark mm. that's a yeah. because it seems cool that the companies actually have to pay that to the state but in denmark it's just like you pay it back yourself in the end also i think it's important to note that tax is a fundamental it is a form of collective ownership that we, we try to acknowledge society is a collective no individual functions alone no individual has ever created anything alone as much as we have this this individualized system everyone's been raised by someone educated gone on roads eaten food all that kind of stuff but the the current system of private property is very bad at representing that and taking that into account because profit motive is short term and is about getting as much possible back to me rather than distributing that. And our current principle of private individual ownership for profit is very bad at representing long-term aim. It's very bad at thinking about long-term preservation of the environment because look at it. It's very bad about thinking long-term social goods. The The infrastructure in the US is totally crumbling, um, but you need all of those things. We talked about the historical development that like in more ancient societies we had more collective ownership but also we were a lot fewer people trying to live together and i think that's something i've thought a lot about that we've developed into these huge countries with states and we've developed into these uh, huge global societies and huge like international businesses hmm. that we're so many people that i think like how many people can actually work together collectively in like what kinds of systems do we have to maintain that relationship and maybe there's something unnatural about the way like the world has developed mm. that we are expecting so many people to be under the same structure all mm. the time because instead of adapting yeah instead of like adapting and maybe just having like smaller societies like this is like mm. a thought experiment to like go back to like when did we have collective ownership when did it work of course we benefited a lot from the development we've had but it's also with the cost of a lot of other stuff two things about that i think that one thing that we missed here was maybe explaining a bit more um a company that is owned by shareholders uh, works when we talk about some uh, very profit-oriented companies and that we criticize so much here we're talking about a company that is owned by shareholders which are people that buy a share from these companies and are then part of a general assembly that is going to elect a board to represent their interests. And very often these interests are to make profits so that as a shareholder you will get dividends. There's even a legal responsibility for firms to do everything to make profit for the sake of their shareholders. And the ideology in which it's based, the neoliberal ideology, actively states that there is one social responsibility for a business and that is to make profit. It has no other moral responsibility. That's what we are criticizing here is this yeah. type of organization yeah. of business. And when we talk about cooperative is to say that we're talking about businesses that are owned by the people who work for them, which means that these people will be part of the General Assembly mm. and will elect a board that would represent their interests, which means protecting their job and making them happy workers, I guess, yeah. or whatever they decide together, that's democracy. The, the difference here is also that the shareholders of a corporation are so far removed from the actual production process. I mean, 
it doesn't matter to them what kind of working conditions the employees have or what kind of environmental degradation this company is, you know, letting out, polluting the, the water sources or whatever. Uh, so that's um, one thing. And, uh, and so when, when you say that we need to go back to when we had more uh, different form of uh, collective ownership, actually we can also imagine that we don't have to uh, change abruptly systems. There are like possibility for transitions. For sure. You know, like you could imagine on a span of like many, many years, workers or, or state or public bodies are buying shares making it mandatory like that for the owner to sell their share and that this share will be bought through the year so that it would be like a gradual transition from one system to the other for instance this is the thing it's not one individual thing there's a lot of ways this can be done and that has a huge impact because in a certain sense shareholders do own something collectively but what they use that for how it's collectively owned it's a very individualized ownership and it's a very individualized responsibility and they can mm. sell out at any time there's different ways of doing collective ownership and i think that's very definitely important yeah you have workers taking taking control into their own hands by owning but also managing so i think it's important to say that owning um is in a, in a work environment is owning the cooperative shares and then managing is having more democratic uh, workers control. The, the second question is about how to finance that, but um, we can talk about that because I think that's super important. Uh, and I'd just like to go on to that. The worker cooperative things, again, it, you could do it as a very, you could do it as a very like, okay, we give every worker a share, but then you end up with the, the, the problem that they'd likely because of material conditions, end up selling those and you very quickly end up with a concentration of power. There's different ways of doing it. So everyone has a share while they're working in the company, but they don't necessarily have the right to sell that share further on. Um, people who work for it tend to be more locally invested, but there have been practical examples of policies. In uh, 1976 in Sweden, this was, was put through, eventually it was extremely diluted. But the idea was that a company would be founded and there would be a thing called a wage earner share levy, I think it was called. The corporation would keep all of its profit, but instead of paying tax, it would pay shares into a fund. And gradually, the shares would accumulate such that that fund had over 50% ownership. Th those shares could not be sold on, but they were democratically controlled by the workers in, in that uh or it could be through a board, it could be through the government, but generally the idea was that workers would have a say. Those shares couldn't be sold on, but it meant that using the, still the structure of shares and property ownership and kind of the structure we have, the people would eventually, yes, the people who founded the company and put the money in would get a profit, but eventually the people who worked there would end up having a greater say and having uh, sort of control over the company while they worked at that company. So they couldn't leave and take it away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The question of financing, I, I think, would need like a whole episode. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> uh, otherwise, we'll go too long for this one. Um, and you're talking about uh, workers' cooperatives, but there exist other types of cooperatives, like consumers' cooperatives, which mean like people that are teaming up together to fulfill their needs, uh, to create an organization or a business that will fulfill their specific needs. So that's one other type that we need to talk about. It's not only workers' cooperatives, there are also different types. And also producer cooperatives. Yeah. And um, because, um, Elizabeth, earlier you talked about like the, like the potential problems of worker cooperatives, we're talking about democratizing, about collective uh, ownership. And just to say that historically, if we look at it, like capitalism actually freed like the possibility for people to start on their own ID because they, they knew they would be able to own it and to develop IDs and the idea of it. It's very important that if someone has a good idea and him, I'm very much quoting Emmanuel Doquez, who is uh, like a French law scholar, they feel that they can start working on it. If as soon as they hire someone, they have to share everything 50% with that person, that's a problem. Like we need to recognize that then you, you never hire anyone because you work 10 years on a project and you hire someone and you have to share 50%. But then if the state is two people together in the firm for 10 years, 15 years, then after that time, what makes the wealth of this firm, this company, is the two of them together. So you need to imagine a system in which when you hire someone, they will start buying back from you your initial in investment. It will take time for this person to have the same status as the first one, like to recognize that someone has more expertise, maybe. 
And it, it is true that like for something in society, it's very fine that people manage their work together and decide together. But there are some uh, areas of uh, production or of, uh, of society that need, like that it would be too dangerous maybe to leave only to the workers working in it. Uh, for instance, if I think about energy and the nuclear system, I would not feel comfortable with nuclear scientists deciding uh, everything about how it would work. Um, or if I think about uh, water management or, or the police, like I would, like that's a personal opinion, but I, I would not think that it would be a positive uh, evolution of society if uh, people working for the police would be the only one deciding of how they mm. work. So there are some part of society for yeah. which, of course, the worker must have a say, but also the general public that is um, using this very essential uh, institution uh, must, through democratic means, have a share or a space in deciding how it's going to work. Like, you need to have, like, mixed system yeah. between workers and general public to manage together. I think that's a, just an expansion of the, the collective ownership principle because you're basically we're talking about workers owning stuff, but we're saying workers because it's, that's how they get their livelihood. That's what they spend most of their time doing. But with all of these other broader things, that impacts other people. So the people that it has a huge impact on, whose lives it influences, who literally might live or die depending on how water is managed, they should have a right to have a say in how those things are organized because yeah. it affects them. But also we're not saying necessarily that like, I, I want my shoes to be collectively owned. If, if it's something that you're directly having on, on your body and using all the time, I think that's fine. What we're really talking about is expanding the democratic principle, which is people should have a right to, to have a say over their lives and the things that are important in their lives. And one way to practically do that would be to make these democratic meetings public mm -hmm. so that members of society or this local community can come in and express their concerns and be part of the decision-making process. And that's been tried out. Again, if we expand this idea of ownership, there have been experiments. I think I read this in that book, Envisioning Real Utopias. It has a bunch of great examples. But, but where they did collective budgeting, where they would have open meetings for, a, I can't remember where it was, maybe it was Quebec or maybe it was somewhere else, um, where they would, you know, people would come in from the community and they would collectively decide how the budget was was distributed, where things were going, like what was prioritized. And you can do that. There's nothing wrong with doing that. Like we have a very limited idea of what democracy is actually mm -hmm. now. That like once every few years you vote for a representative, then they make all the decisions. That's also because it comes, okay, we're getting a bit off topic, but that's also because it comes from a specific historical period where really they did want to limit the, the say that a lot of people had. That's the basis of our democracy. They wanted to constrain it to a very specific class. And there are often property requirements to vote originally. In my research into workers' cooperatives, have come across a, a problem of that, which is that things happen really slowly. So there was this one, I can't remember the name of it. Oh, wait, I have it here. It was called Black Star. It's a workers' cooperative and basically takes them forever to come up with a, a decision about which ketchup bottles to use. I, I was reading this personal account of someone who worked there and they said that they were against having a uniform but some of the older uh, more established workers there had a different opinion and so the downside to having a more inclusive decision-making process is that it does take a long time a longer time um, but then at the same time I've also read that you come up with more creative solutions to um, um, to problems of the company. And that just makes sense intuitively because you have a bunch of brains thinking about the same problem coming with different uh, perspectives. And so that's also, that's uh, there's, a, there's the downside, but there's also the upside of creative solutions. And I think there are methods you can get around that. You can have structural things. And it's not like every single decision about the color of the font needs to be decided by a unanimous vote you can go okay we're going to give this responsibility to this person they can make decisions about this thing but that's different from having constantly the same person making all of the decisions regardless of their expertise you can still have expertise you can still say this person has trained as a graphic designer they should probably have say over our pamphlets mm -hmm. right and yeah. you can still distribute the power in that way it's just not constantly having that division also it's important to discuss that like 
democratizing will it will be more elaborate and it will take a lot more time but also we live in a society where democracy is like the fundamental value and i think that's why collective ownership and a lot of different initiatives should be thought more about because it would be awesome to have a more de- democratic society and yes it would cost in some ways but also it would really change the way we think and the way we can have influence on our lives in a daily basis I think for me also, like on a broader scale and to bring back from what I said in the beginning, in the United States, for example, the top, I think, 10% has for the past 20 or 50 years, it's a lot of years, benefited a lot from the economic growth that had happened in the United States. And none of the 50 bottom percent has experienced any economic growth in their like daily um, living basis. And that inequality and difference, I think, could be challenged a lot through doing collective ownership getting all the means of production that those top 10% own distributed through the society so that everyone gets a share of that profit. And also, now that we're talking about inequalities, we've talked a lot about how collective ownership could maybe challenge environmental problems through the fact that more people own it and also the people who own it are also the people who will suffer the consequences if we pollute the environment but also maybe collective ownership could have an influence on other inequalities such as gender and race do you have any ideas on that i mean i think elise was already touching a little bit about it um talking about uh, how can you look at it in the term of household and i think it's just to quote george monbiot who is the political analyst or philosopher from the uk and talks about very much like because adam said in the beginning that we were often caught this in um, this axis that is like either uh, the market or the state and what he says george monbiot uh, is that you need also to look at the other axis which is the household and the common and i think we touch a bit about the common and like the sense of community but also in the term of household and about genders uh, inequalities uh, looking at um, the production or the, actually the, the work of reproduction that is done in a household and how can this be democratically managed i think that could bring a l- kind of a shift quite a shift in consciousness yeah you know what happens in the in the formal economy also affects what happens in the informal economy to bring it back to this example about you know if you have a boyfriend or a partner or whatever diagnosed with cancer and you know they're the household provider or something and you're stuck in a work environment where it's just top down management nobody cares about your personal needs that affects your household uh, what happens outside of work and I mean, things are changing, but it is typically women who are held responsible for all these domestic responsibilities. So in that way, that would disproportionately affect women. So having a more democratic uh, workplace or democratic whatever place, that the personal needs of, of the members of that cooperative can be met through helping each other. So that might be a stretch, but that can also, you know, help to tackle some gender uh, inequality problems. There is actually a very practical example I just thought of. Um, Again, I think it was in Quebec. That's because where this book I was reading was focused on, of organizing childcare through collective ownership. Mm, And and through, it was partially state subsidized and it was quite complex. I can't really go into it here. I highly recommend the book again, Envisioning Real Utopias, free online. It was organized in such a way that it was less for profit was often distributing that that burden of, of care throughout the society and th- there are ways practical ways we can organize these things as well like childcare through collective ownership if you want rather than having to spend a huge sum of money on a nursery and making it more compassionate for instance because again the profit motive has proven horrible for for care industries especially later life care and how we treat old people and i think we talk about other type of inequalities and we talk a bit about colonialism and if you look at how the resources are managed uh, in a lot of countries of the global south, it is not communities that are managing their resources, but mm. it is companies that are buying. Uh, now when we see communities that are destroyed by uh, gas exploitation or mining because they don't have any say on the management of the resources 
from the place where they live. Think. And I think that looking at this in terms of commons and the world commons and how you can empower community to organize and manage resources would be also a huge shift. It's literally the land under their feet. Someone has decided that they own that. Yeah, I mean, look at Native Americans. Uh, um, and in terms of race, there's some very important non-economic forms of racial discrimination. We have to acknowledge that. But racial discrimination has often been articulated through economic dispossession. Slaves were freed, but then they had no access to the means of, of livelihood in the U.S. And right. the continued dispossession of, of people of color in the U.S. Of, of property and land is a huge way through which health inequalities and stuff are caused. Yeah, also the formal economic inequalities shape the informal economic inequalities and the other way around. And also, if you have collective ownership, then you have to respect the other people as equal in the share. And I think that the ide ideology of having collective ownership would force people into actually respecting each other Yeah. in the long run, not just one day to the other, one making racist, unracist, but I think it could mm. like force people to recognize each other as equal. Yes. Apparently one of the best ways to get people to, to sort of recognize each other is to make them work together. Exactly, towards a yeah. Goal. yeah. Mm. And that's, a, that's yeah, I think that's the thing collective ownership could do on yeah. like a lower basis. Uh, one example I just wanted to bring up about uh, racial equality or inequality and ownership. I don't have the details, so it's, it's not going to be very specific, but there are black farmers in the U.S. who were denied loans to buy the seeds actually and they were systematically denied the loans until after the season had already gotten cold so they didn't have the chance to plant their seeds in time for the harvest I don't know farm things but yeah then they united and sued the banks I really wish I could remember the details now um, individuals who have their own implicit biases, making decisions about who gets what in private banks, but also elsewhere. That is just racism that's institutionalized and will, of course, perpetuate this, this cycle of poverty and the cycle of racism and discrimination. So if we have collective ownership, these decisions about who gets what is, is based on the principle of equality rather than individuals being able to make these decisions out of with their own implicit biases. There's two important things that I want to really make explicit but that you've mentioned. One is that the theoretical basis of neoliberalism, they argue that the market is unbiased and actually it'll work anti-discriminatorily. That's not how it works. And this is the fundamental thing we've been talking about, that economic power has concrete impacts on people's lives and can exclude them. And, you know, racial, gender, they're all articulated through these things because people who are, who are wealthy also tend to be the people who are dominant in these other things. And second, they join together to have this court case. This is the thing. This is the power you have is by working together. It amplifies. Is it Genghis Khan? One arrow alone is easily broken, but a bundle of arrows can't be broken. Working together is the best power we have. And collective ownership is... is a way of institute to extend a little bit on that and touch again a little bit on the environment it's just to also to recognize that for the moment some people have uh, a huge access to wealth and uh, a huge access to private luxury which is incredibly unsustainable yeah. while aiming for private sufficiency and maybe public luxury would be like a way to allow people to have access to luxury, but collectively so that it is made more sustainable. Yeah, so I think we're about at the end of our discussion today. Um, but first, I would like to ask you guys, what have you learned from researching and discussing and talking about collective ownership? To say something super positive, um, I've learned that there are just so many practical ways to to practice collective ownership and that people are doing it and people are doing it successfully. It really encourages me and has inspired me to actually look in, right now I live in Denmark, um, look into what is actually being done in Denmark. I kind of knew about it before, but this has definitely made me much more of a, an advocate for it. Also understanding the complexities and that nothing is perfect, 
but this is a concrete way that we can, we can make some positive changes that can get around a lot of the current huge gaping flaws in our system. And it's also given me a certain level of hope because I see that, that people are, are doing these things. Obviously, again, it's difficult. I think sometimes we can get trapped in this idea that this is the way things are. Mm-hmm. There's no way to change any of this. Whereas there, there, there are things that can be complex things or simple things or, or legal things that are points of pressure that you could, if you just change that, that can have a huge impact and improve people's lives. And it's really nice to see that. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's obviously kind of the same, which is that I was already convinced, and I am still, that working more cooperatively, working towards more like community-based solution is the way to go. But I think like this time, taking the time to study and talk about it with more people, it really inspired me also to look at alternatives that I already know, but didn't look at them and didn't understand the potential in them. I'm, I'm thinking about, uh, I come from a city in Belgium called Liège, in which there exist uh, real estate cooperatives that are people teaming up together to buy buildings in the city, restore them, and um, rent them at an affordable price to organization or of to, poor, to families, like poor families, for them to, to live in. And in 20 years, they bought around like 10 buildings in the cities and they plan to buy a building every two years. And that's just one example. And there's many of them. And it really inspired me to go talk to these people, understand what were the challenges, how they did it, and look at in in here in Denmark, maybe what could be the possibilities of going toward uh, alternatives like this. I think what I've learned from discussing collective ownership is the potential for it to be more democratizing in our society and to everyone to have like an ownership and a vote in what they do in their daily life, which is one of the things that could be very alienating when you're working or doing something that someone owns you or owns your time in some way. And also on a daily basis, like a shift of thought to be like, oh, I actually don't need all these tools for myself. I actually just need my toothbrush and like certain stuff, but we can share a lot more than what we do. And we could make systems like in an apartment building, for example, like why do we have seven different uh, machines for building or doing something like a hammer? Why do we have seven? Yeah, washing machine. Like why do we have so much of that when we could actually just have a closet in the basement and then just all share the tools? Like it seems like such a waste and such a weird way of thinking that we don't just share everything that we can share. That's a very good point. Um, I think there's a lot we haven't touched on about the broader ideas of ownership, psychology of ownership, all that kind of stuff. But I think we are going to have to stop it uh, here. Maybe we'll touch on some of those ideas in future. I would like to mention we've done a lot of research for this podcast. Everyone's gone away and and really dug into it so those uh, notes and some sources will be in the podcast description if you'd like uh, go check out Mellemfolklit Samviga Aarhus on Facebook on Instagram on the website if you're around come down to the cafe we'd love to see you Um, and we look forward to next time where I don't know what we'll be doing but we'll work that one out Uh, until next time bye thank you for listening (laughs) 